Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Shortly after midnight on March 13, 2020, Brianna Taylor, a 26-year-old Black woman, an ER technician, was fatally shot in her Louisville, Kentucky apartment by Louisville Metropolitan Police officers when they raided her apartment, firing 36 rounds and striking the unarmed Miss Taylor six times. While one of the officers was fired and the city of Louisville agreed to reform police practices and pay Brianna Taylor's family $12 million, the grand jury failed to indict any of the officers for Brianna's death. Brianna Taylor is added to a long list of black women who have tragically died at the hands of law enforcement with no one held accountable for their deaths such as Tatiana Jefferson, who was shot while in her Fort Worth, Texas home almost a year ago, and Sandra Bland, who in 2015 was illegally arrested following a traffic stop and then found hung in her cell three days later. In Breonna Taylor's case, there are several questions surrounding the warrant authorizing the raid, the basis for the warrant, and the police actions when executing the warrant. Equally troubling are questions surrounding the investigation and the grand jury proceedings. On this evening's show, we're going to talk about the Brianna Taylor tragic death and her case with two of our colleagues, both of whom teach constitutional law. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Dion Gonder, NCCU Law Clinical Professor and Supervising Attorney of the Criminal Litigation Clinic and Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, NCCU Law Clinical Professor and Supervising Attorney for the Juvenile Law Clinic. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you, glad to be here. So both of you are experts in criminal law. You've taught criminal law and practiced criminal law for many, many years. Can you help put into context the raid that led to Ms. Taylor's death and why the raid itself was so problematic? And uh, Dion, let's start with you. All right. Well, the information that I've gathered about the case, it appears that the officers were, um, they secured a search warrant, a no-knock search warrant for Ms. Taylor's residence, as well as another home about two, 10 blocks away. Uh, apparently there was an individual uh, by the last name Glover who Ms. Taylor had been in a relationship with over a number of years off and on. Um, he was an alleged drug dealer, um, did have past convictions and past run-ins with the police. Uh, and the police did do an investigation um, for drugs um, related to Glover. Uh, there the primary aspects of their investigation really were centered on this other home about 10 blocks away from where Ms. Taylor lived. 
Um, but because there were um, a couple of instances where Ms. Taylor's name and her vehicle were associated with, with Glover or, or Glover had actually visited her home um, on a couple of occasions, according to police surveillance, uh, they decided that they were actually gonna also include her home as part of this no-knock search warrant. And um, Dorothy, so there was this investigation, uh, her apartment was being raided. Can you talk a little bit about what a no-knock warrant is and why that might raise concern for uh, just the community at large, particularly the African-American community, which is so often, um, uh, they're, they're so often having to deal with uh, drug raids? Yes, for sure. So a no-knock warrant is a warrant that the police can get um, in some jurisdictions that still have them or still allow for them, in which they do not have to announce themselves before they enter. And so that is what took place on this night. Um, there are some other uh, lots of discrepancies or lots of information that has come out about um, the information that they provided in order to get this kind of no-knock warrant. Um, or the information they put on the affidavits in order to get the warrant in general, um, as well as other things. And so when you speak about um, how does it, how black people um, are affected by that, one, um, just people in general, let's start with that. So this, it, from my understanding, this was about, as you stated before, about 1230 in the morning. Um, from what I understand, the information that they provided um, on the warrant or the information they provided in order to get the warrant was about the same time that they was actually executing the warrant. Um, so there's a discrepancy there. Um, as well as they, it was like the wee hours of the morning. So you have people that are asleep. And so something like a no knock warrant, if you are going to someone's home, you expect for people to be asleep at this time of the morning or this time of the night. And you should have to announce yourself. Um, and so if you don't, and usually with a no-knock warrant, they are going in plain clothes. They are not looking like the police. Um, it's an entire situation in which they're trying to, I don't want to use the word secret, but I can't think of another word right now to kind of um, covertly going to the place and they're trying to execute that. So the timing that they decided to execute the warrant is an issue. Um, and this, like I said, for people in general, that's the time of the night in which you feel like you, you want to feel safe in your home. And so when someone, it, what sounds, you know, what happened here, what appeared to Brianna's boyfriend as someone just bursting into their apartment and he feels the necessity to protect himself and his girlfriend who he cared for. I mean, it seems logical that anybody would do that, right? Add to that being a black person in the times that we are in right now in this country in which there's all of these incidences that are exposing systemic racism. And so it, like um, Dion talked about, this warrant included her name and her apartment. There's lots of information that's been out there about why she was included. From what I understand, her and this ex-boyfriend were not in a relationship anymore. They didn't have any dealings with each other anymore. They, um, the police provided information about possibly the ex-boyfriend having packages delivered to her residence. And that's part of why they included her residence. Um, Dion spoke about the car being used and some other information. But this gentleman was actually in custody when they executed this no-knock no warrant. 
And so there was just a lot of um, details about them getting this warrant that is, you know, really confusing and quite frankly does not just doesn't make any sense in any way, not in the practical side or the legal side. And if I can, I'm sorry, if I could just add, you know, one of the things that, that is so problematic about the way the officers went about this is that anyone that has any sort of association with any person who may have gotten in trouble with the law, suddenly now they're you know, exposed to having their home searched in the middle of the night with officers carrying guns. Um, some of my research also indicated that the officers didn't actually follow a number of their own procedures as they Absolutely. set this up. Um, you know, one of the things that, that was supposed to occur is that there should be a, an ambulance there on standby. Right. Um, but an hour before they actually raided, they sent the ambulance away. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, you know, the, the, the problem of, um, you know, they were supposed to be surveilling the, the residents in advance to know who was there, how many people, to, to do some evaluation of just what the risks were going to be. And somehow, although Ms. Taylor and her boyfriend, Kenny Walker, were there at the same time enjoying a movie, uh, for whatever reason, the officers didn't, weren't even aware that Mr. Walker was there. For them, it was, it was going to be a no, no brainer. We'll just run in. There'll be this little old 26 year old unarmed woman and we can do what we want. Um, and that's how it came across. And that's what they thought they were going to encounter. And they actually claim that even though they obtained a no knock warrant, that they actually announced themselves. So there's a lot of this information out there. Um, they, from what I understand, there were several people that were interviewed in the apartment building and no one, but one, except for one person actually stated after being questioned several different times, finally said and changed his answer to, oh yes, I think I heard the police say something about, hey, we're here, police let us in. Um, but this person has some language barrier from what I understand. And like I said, he had been interviewed several times, but the other part, and he was outside of the building, from what I understand. It wasn't that he was even in the building during that time period. So there's a lot of discrepancies when it comes to that, as, if, as if the police are saying, like Dion said, they thought they had an open and shut kind of situation. And then after the fact, now they're trying to clean it up and say, oh, well, even though we got this no knock warning, if you all believe that there may be some issues with that, we actually did knock and announce ourselves. And so they say as if they're trying to cover themselves on both ends. And why would they send the, the ambulance away? Why would they do that when in this kind of situation with a no knock warrant, there is a heightened level of um, risk, as Dion stated, that is involved that much more heightened, it's heightened level of risk anyway when the police go out and execute a warrant in any, under any circumstances. But definitely in this kind of situation, they, and they, the whole purpose of having the ambulance there is because they, they know that it could be some injuries that come out of a situation like this. So to send them away, that, that's, that's confusing. Well, let me ask, what, what, what is the legal standard for uh, obtaining uh, a search warrant in the first place. So they have to, um, there has to be some probable cause. Um, they have to, of course, get issued, um, tender an affidavit. Um, they can actually go out with, it, which is detailed with information about what they're searching for, 
who they're searching for, and then the parameters and things around how they're going to conduct the search and all of that, um, kind of in a nutshell. So what, what would constitute uh, probable cause? So, um, the way I try to describe that to my students um, is it's, a, first of all, a very low standard. Um, that, and they is more probable than not that the person or the things that they are looking for is there um, and that the person that they are looking for is there. And so it's not that beyond a reasonable doubt, higher standard. Um, it's a little bit more than reasonable suspicion, but it's, that's the best way I can describe it in, in layman's terms. If, if Dion, you got a little bit more than, than that. So the, the other piece of it is just um, the, the things or, or the persons that they're searching for have to be associated with, with some recognized crime. Mm -hmm. um, so if the officers can say that, that the things they're looking for are contraband or were used in some way as part of, the, of a criminal activity. And, and again, it, it, uh, Dorothy's right, it's just more probable than not um, that, that these things are present and that they're more probably than not associated with criminal activity than, than they're allowed to get the warrant. Um, but they do have to at least go to a judge and have a judge to review what, what they claim their facts are and their information and, and have the judge agree to issue that warrant. But, but it is a low standard. But the, the, the low standard means that they, they don't really have to have a lot of information about uh, the uh, focus of the search or the rationale for the search before they can get a magistrate to issue a uh, search warrant. That's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Which is a, a real danger uh, existing in, uh, in any community uh, for people where there are searches uh, conducted by police and these type of incidents occur uh, very often uh, throughout uh, whatever community that, uh, that we're in. And uh, the, uh, the amount of information or the validity of the information that is provided does not have to be that strong in order for there to be an authorization uh, for an officer to uh, enter your home. And even though there's this constitutional requirement that uh, you have to knock and announce, with a no-knock warrant, as you indicated, you don't have to knock and announce, just as a matter of law. Absolutely. And then the problem with that, with that low standard and that information that you just spoke about is that black people feel like already that we're, you know, we're looked at as more probable than not of having committed a crime or more probable than not of being associated, like Dion said, with someone who has been involved in some kind of crime. And just by being black, we probably have drugs in our house. So we probably are, you know what I mean? So black people already feel that way. And so to have that coupled with it, there really being a legally low standard in order to obtain a warrant in general, that's a problem for black people, especially. And you know, the other thing is, even though it's a low standard, the, the basis for the warrant still has to be uh, accurate and factual. And there are a lot of questions about whether the underlying warrant 
was problematic because some of the, um, the information that the warrant was relied upon was not quite accurate in terms of, you know, any type of uh, monitoring of packages uh, coming from her residence. Uh, so that's a problem as well. And it kind of speaks to one of the things you mentioned, Dorothy, which is, it's kind of this after the fact, trying to clean up, right, a mess mm -hmm. um, and the support for the warrant, uh, how the warrant was executed, as you noted, just a lot of discrepancies. Um, the, the other thing is, you know, with the, the issues that arise with a no-knock warrant at, you know, 12 midnight, um, someone coming in. So uh, Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, was there. A licensed gun owner, licensed gun carrier, um, is in a situation where he fears for his life and, and the life of his, um, of his girlfriend. And so he does shoot. Uh, can you two talk about the uh, police response to that? Um, and so, you know, even if the police had uh, some basis for, for firing, can you talk about the excess nature of the response, which resulted in Miss Taylor being shot six times Kenneth Walker not being shot a single time, um, and, and the evidence that kind of reveals that she was probably shot as well while she was uh, already on the ground. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one of the other problems. Um, it, one of the things that this um, Daniel Cameron, the attorney general spoke about was that these police officers were acting in self-defense in some way. Um, when they were there and had a, did not announce, We'll go with the you know, the premise that they did not knock and announce before they went in. So really the person who was operating validly under a self-defense or a defense of others claim would be the boyfriend. And so he shot one shot back, shot one, shot one time. And they fired, it seems like from what we've heard, 30 plus rounds into the apartment and the other apartments around. And so when speaking about self-defense, I mean, you have to um, meet the danger, um, uh, um, ward off the danger with how it's you've been met with it. I, I'm trying to put it in, in layman's terms. So you can't use excessive force. And so a, a good example would be that, well, this is a good example, actually. You, they, he shot one time and then they shoot back 30 plus times back when they got one shot that was fired at them. That's a pretty hard pill to swallow on a self-defense claim. And he had every right to believe that he was facing imminent danger. I mean, he's in sleep in the wee hours of the morning. All he hears is someone busting into the door. And so he does what any person would do under the circumstances. And you know, what's really sad about it is um, he, he still didn't realize that, that these were officers. He's on 911 mm -hmm. um, trying to get uh, uh, someone to come and, and care for Brianna um, and responding to that situation. And he's asking for the police to come. Right. He doesn't know who's in that, in that apartment, who's been firing. He just knows that someone bust in, they used, used a battering ram to, to, to bust down the door to enter the apartment in the middle of the night. Um, and so, you know, what, what's really sad about it is that uh, Kentucky, that they, they have a stand your ground law that, that, that you're allowed in your home to respond with, with deadly force by, by shooting at, at an intruder um, or someone you believe to be an intruder. But yet after this all went down, Kenny Walker is the one indicted and being charged with attempted murder. Brianna Taylor is dead. 
And we have six months before a grand jury ever comes into, into play to, to decide whether or not there should be charges for the officers. And then, of course, let alone the fact that the officers don't end up getting charged in Breonna Taylor's death. All right. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with two of our colleagues, Dion Gonder, a clinical law professor at NCCU Law and supervising attorney for the Criminal Litigation Clinic, and Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, clinical law professor as well at NCCU Law and supervising attorney for the Juvenile Law Clinic. We're going to have to take a quick break. We will be right back. We hope you stay with us. Since its debut in August of 1995, WNCU 90.7 FM, licensed to North Carolina Central University, has consistently fulfilled its mission to provide quality, culturally appropriate programming to public radio listeners in the Triangle area. The format of this listener-supported public radio station entertains the jazz aficionado, educates the novice jazz listener, and disseminates news and information relative to the community at large. For more information about WNCU 90.7 FM, please visit its website at www.wncu.org. My name is Reginald Woods II, and this has been the Legal Eagle Review. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us for uh, this discussion, where we're talking about the uh, shooting death of uh, Breonna Taylor in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, following a uh, recent decision by a grand jury there to uh, indict a uh, police officer for um, shooting into apartments surrounding that of uh, Breonna Taylor, but no indictments uh, relating to the actual invasion and uh, shooting of uh, Ms. Taylor causing her uh, death. Our guests uh, this evening are Dion Gonda, who is a uh, clinical law professor at uh, NCCU Law School, and uh, Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, uh, who is the, uh, a professor in the uh, juvenile uh, law uh, clinic, and we were talking about the uh, process surrounding the obtaining of uh, search warrants and the uh, ser- uh, serving of those once they have been uh, obtained. Uh, let me just you know direct this this question to to each of you. You, you, you talked about the uh, shooting by Mr. Walker uh, when he uh, heard that uh, heard people coming into the uh, apartment that he was sharing at that moment uh, with uh, Ms. Taylor. Um, And you mentioned the fact that uh, he was licensed. My question is, and this is just for our audience, uh, is is it necessary that uh, people be licensed to have uh, guns in their home uh, that they use for uh, self-protection? It's not necessary for them to have it in their home. Um, However, 
being a black person, it's probably necessary to have it even um, for having it in your home. But of course, um, being able to carry it out um, and have it concealed and on your person and all of that outside of your home, it's a necessity. So. So notwithstanding the fact, that, well, in, in, in this situation, I guess my question really focused on uh, for information that uh, every person has a right to have a, uh, a gun uh, in their home or firearms in their home unless they are a convicted felon. Right. And uh, typically there are statutory laws that would criminalize, criminalize uh, the uh, possession and ownership of guns by convicted felons. And there was no information here that Mr. Walker was a convicted uh, felon. Uh, therefore, he was uh, privileged to right. uh, have a firearm in the home. And uh, that is what you use it uh, for. Uh, you mentioned the, um, the attorney general that's handling this case, uh, Mr. Uh, Cameron, uh, who is uh, an African-American. Um, he has been elected as the attorney general for the state of Kentucky. Do you know why it was necessary that the attorney general bring this case before the uh, grand jury in Louisville rather than uh, the uh, district attorney in, uh, in Louisville? I'll um, take that. I um, have not run across the specifics in the Breonna Taylor case. But typically speaking, uh, criminal matters are, are prosecuted by local prosecutors um, in any state or, or jurisdiction. And so it should have been those that were um, in, in charge of prosecutions um, in Louisville, Kentucky. But what happens is because local prosecutors work so closely with local law enforcement agencies like the Louisville Metropolitan Police Department, um, they, they essentially are viewed as having a, a conflict. They don't feel that they can view the information and make reasoned judgments. And so in those instances, uh, they may, I'm, you know, I'm not sure exactly how they do it in Kentucky, but typically a state prosecution unit like the attorney general's office will step in um, to take over those, the investigation and any decision-making in those cases. Um, so I suspect that that's exactly what, what occurred here um, when, when Daniel Cameron took over. Not to mention the fact that some would believe that he wanted to take it over um, for political reasons. Um, he is um, a known Republican. He's young, I, I believe he's about 34 years old. And so he wants to, has already made a name for himself and wants to continue on that political path. So a lot believe that he wanted to take it over for those reasons. And by, from my understanding, before this all took place, um, he was he was not disliked by um, African-Americans or people of color in that that state. But now it's you know, a lot of people are looking at him very differently. Um, especially because he, and I know this wasn't really your question, but just wanted to kind of um, point these things out. And especially when he spoke at the Republican National Convention and made lots of statements about 
the police being um, good people and, you know, needing to be protected and like all of these different things, these statements that he made. And so that's why a lot of the folks that or a lot of the things that he said in his press conference about the grand jury process and how that went, a lot of people are not believing what he's saying because of his kind of history and uh, what everybody see him sees as him on the political side. Now, there is an effort presently to obtain uh, transcripts of the uh, grand jury uh, proceedings. Is, is that possible? I thought the grand jury proceedings were uh, confidential and secret, such that uh, anything that goes on within the grand jury can't be made public. And let me... Um kind of piggyback on that on that question. Um, at the time of this recording, actually, uh, the judge in the case who entertained the motion has actually ordered that the recordings be released. And so this happened just, you know, not too long ago. Um, so at the time that you all will be hearing this show, um, we will have already received the information, but it does kind of speak to the um, unique circumstances that we have here. And so, Deanna and Dorothy, can you talk about the, the grand jury process kind of in general and why a request of this nature is so unprecedented or, or extraordinary? So the grand jury process um, is such that um, these folks are convened um, and the persons that participate in the grand jury proceed proceeding is the district attorney, or in this case, the attorney general, who is bringing the charges. Um, and so they present their case to the panel, the grand jury panel, and essentially they get what they ask for most of the time. Um, there is no defense attorney involved in that process. They bring forth whatever witnesses who, or who, whomever they feel are necessary in order to get the information before the grand jury for them to issue an indictment or a true bill. And so when we heard the information about there were no true bills um, issued for those certain charges, then it leads us to believe that there was certain information that was not presented because those of us that know that process and know anything about the grand jury process, um, I heard this quote that someone said about you can pretty much get it uh, indict a ham sandwich or something like that. That I mean, it pretty much essentially happens. You don't have any opposition. You're presenting what you want. Um, and a lot of times, or I've never been involved, right? Because I'm a defense attorney. So I've never been involved in the grand jury um, process. But from what I understand, a lot of times the prosecutors is pretty much telling the, the folks there or um, encouraging them in a lot of ways on what to do, on how to... Um, Come, how to rule on, on the evidence that they've been presented. And so that's, that's what happens there. Um, so it, 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 there's a lot to, it, that we are going to see to come out of this, um, these recordings and this information to come out. It is usually um, secret and we don't get to hear the information or see the information. Um, but from what I understand, a, um, a juror themselves actually asked for the information to be released because they saw the press conference and heard all the information that Daniel Cameron was um, putting out about the process. And so this person feels like they were used and it quote as a shield for um, doing what he couldn't do or didn't decide to do. And it, it, I think we should point out too that 
um, it doesn't have to be that the case had to go to the grand jury. This attorney general could have brought these charges on his own. So that's why this juror member feels like they were used as a shield to do what he really didn't want to do, uh, which is not bring the charges against these police officers. So he's kind of putting it on them where the grand jury didn't issue a, a um, true bill. So therefore, it just didn't happen. You all need to trust the process and, and all of that. That's kind of the way he's presenting it. And, and honestly, this is not the first time that this has happened in our nation when, when you're dealing with uh, police shootings. Uh, what, what people in the community see is that anyone else is charged with a crime and an indictment happens like a snap. It doesn't take much. There's no contest. It's pretty immediate. Uh, for example, in this case, Kenny Walker, who was defending his home, was immediately indicted. And, and fortunately, later on, those charges were dismissed. Um, but immediately, he was arrested and, and indicted. Um, it took six months before anything was even presented to a grand jury with respect to Breonna Taylor's death um, and the officer's shooting. Um, and, and what happens in those instances is, you know, people begin to question, well, why is it that the prosecutor, or in this instance, the attorney general made the decision to present a balanced case, um, is what it sounds like, presented both sides of the issue and let the grand jury decide. Normally, prosecutors don't do that. They present their side, the information that is most favorable to getting an indictment, and then they let the process run through the courts and let a jury in a trial um, decide and weigh that information. Not a grand jury. That's not the grand jury's role. Um, well, can, can you explain to our audience what, what, what you mean by a no true bill? So they didn't, no true bill means that the grand jury members did not find that there was probable cause to charge or for this officer or these officers to be charged with these certain crimes that they that were presented to them in the grand jury. And I well, think this, this is a return uh, document that the uh, grand jury would issue in response to a request from the uh, prosecutor that uh, they issue an indictment. Is that correct? Yes. All right. Now, in, in this case, uh, from what I understand, that there was no information that the uh, grand jury returned a no true bill. What would be the significance of that? It, the significance is it, it's an indication as if there, were, there was not any information presented to them on that particular issue or that particular crime. So had there been Those a request crimes. for that, had there been a request for an indictment, then the response would have been either a true bill or a no true bill. So in the absence of a no true bill, then the assumption is that there wasn't a request for an indictment relating to the uh, Brianna uh, Taylor uh, death. Absolutely. And that gets to, you know, what, what both of you have been talking about in, in our entire discussion, which is the lack of transparency, the lack of um, candor in terms of what happened. And Dion had mentioned in terms of the grand jury and the role that it plays and the role that the prosecutors play. And even, you know, I think it's questionable whether the prosecutors even presented a balanced side or if what they did was really present a side in favor of the defense, um, which speaks to why it is that having these tapes released will 
um, reveal exactly what was presented, what was requested, and then the grand jury won't be used as a shield as the, the grand juror has, um, has indicated. Um, can you both talk about how the lack of transparency in the criminal justice system just you know, continuously erodes the trust on the part of the public, particularly black and brown communities. Uh, but before I have you do that, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, you're listening to The Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with two of our wonderful colleagues here at North Carolina Central University School of Law, Professor Dion Gonder, who is a clinical law professor and also supervising attorney with the Criminal Litigation Clinic, and Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, who is a clinical law professor and supervising attorney of the Juvenile Law Clinic. We're going to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African-American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low-income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with two exceptional law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, who is the supervising attorney for the Juvenile Law Clinic and clinical professor, and Professor Dion Gonder, who is the supervising attorney for the Criminal Litigation Clinic and clinical law professor at our esteemed law school. They both have taught criminal law for many years, have been practitioners, and continue to be practitioners in our community. Um, ladies, right before the break, we were talking about the need for transparency, and we were talking about the request that was made by one of the grand jurors that the grand jury proceedings in Breonna Taylor's case be released, and a judge ordered that they be released, and the Attorney General, Kentucky Attorney General, Daniel Cameron has agreed pursuant to the judge's order to release those tapes. When this episode airs, we will have already received that information. And so we're just putting it out there right now that we are going to invite you all back at some point soon so you can share your thoughts about the information that's been revealed. Um, but we've been talking about this need for transparency. <clears throat> and can you all talk about why it's so important 
that, that we do have transparency, particularly in black, black and brown communities that have historically been over-policed, uh, that historically have had situations where uh, a report says one thing and then a law enforcement report or incident report says one thing and then something else uh, is revealed to demonstrate that you know the initial reporting was was inaccurate or just you know straight out lie, uh, we see that often when uh, there's been some incident report and then a video surfaces and we see that what the officer may have said happened was not in fact the case. Can you talk about the lack of transparency and the need for transparency in order to build the trust, if it can be built, between law enforcement and our communities of color? Well, and, that, and that's that point you spoke about about trust is what I was thinking as you were, you know, giving us that question was that you know it, it is going to take a lot, and that would be the beginning of establishing trust if it can be established, like you said. Um, I won't even say rebuild it because black and brown communities never have trusted um, police officers or law enforcement. Really, they really we really haven't. And so I think it would be a building of trust, if anything. Um, and that's the start of it. There, it's going to take a lot, though. I think it's going to take um, the transparency, as in this is what the process is, this is how the process goes, and actually show folks that this it has actually taken place that way in our community as well as other communities. Um, quite frankly, black and brown communities are not so concerned at this stage about the transparency in other communities and all of that. It's about what actually is taking place in our communities. And so, like you said, if you see um, that this paperwork says this and then the video comes out saying another thing, that's a huge deal for, for folks to, you know, to swallow. And so we need to know from the beginning of the process, know what all the process is and know that the police officers will be held to that standard regardless of where they're executing the warrant or where their investigation takes place, whether it's in our community or someone else's community. And then have these um, different forums and different things in which you know, folks can express themselves and talk about how all of this has made them feel. You know, I heard someone else speak about how this decision feels like an act of violence. And so not the, the family, Breonna Taylor's family already feels, I mean, that's an act of violence in and of itself for her to be killed, right? And then for this decision to come out to feel re-victimized another time for it look appearing as if her, her life had no value of any nature. I mean, and then to hear all the details about her laying there and nobody rendered any aid and, you know, all of this, where that's an example of, if black folks knew that this is the process and the process is actually followed that way, not that we want situations to come about in order for us to test the process, um, but to at least know that if it does happen, it will be followed in the right way. I think that would be the start. But there's been a, the history has been that uh, police officers are not prosecuted uh, for uh, committing acts of violence against African-Americans. So why are we uh, surprised at uh, this outcome? Because we, we feel like even though they haven't, that here's another opportunity for someone to show us right and to get it right. So each time, I mean, and that's just the nature of um, Black folks, quite frankly. 
we a lot of black people or most black people i will say um their values and morals are based in religious um beliefs and so you you believe that you still have faith and you have hope and you believe that things could be better and so every single time something something new comes about with one of our persons being um killed we believe, okay, maybe this time they will get it right. And maybe this time they will show us. And so that's why I think that a lot of people feel like maybe, just maybe it could be different this time. And honestly, I don't know that that it was so much a surprise to, to a number of people, but that people are tired. Um, and, and at this point, it seems like the to, to the communities who are protesting that, that that's the only thing that is moving people to think about what is broken in the criminal justice system particularly when it involves police shootings of black and brown people um, they're tired and so while they, they hoped that there would be an indictment in a day in court in mm -hmm. which a jury could, could actually hear the evidence and decide whether these officers acted properly or not, you know, it didn't happen. And so, but at the end of the day, that the protests are continuing because they are trying to enact change, finally. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have had more change and reform to happen since COVID-19, since March, because there have been so many protests that are drawing attention to it. Even in Kentucky, as part of that settlement where Breonna Taylor's estate was um, able to, to get $12 million, reforms went into place as part of that. Yeah. Um, as well, they passed in Kentucky Breonna, well, excuse me, at least in the Louisville area, Breonna's law, which then mm -hmm. finally banned the use of no-knock warrants. Right. Um, and so whether people were surprised or not, um, you know, I think... If, if they just remained silent because they weren't surprised, that would be a problem because the, 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 her name, you know, the movement is say her name. Mm -hmm. It's to keep her name out there so that her death hopefully will maybe be the last one of these that happen in this way where there's no accountability. Right. And speaking of uh, broken systems and accountability, um, so Dion, you mentioned the $12 million uh, settlement that the that the family received, and of course, no amount of money can uh, address the the hurt and harm and loss of a beloved member of the family. Uh, it is one of the largest amounts I think that we've seen in these types of of cases. And I guess the question that I'd like for both of you to respond to is: Is this the way in which we should go about um, fixing this broken system? Uh, is is in terms of accountability and and in terms of any type of civil judgment, it's not even coming from the individual officers who may have committed the harm. It's coming from the the city or the or the uh, state, and it's being paid by taxpayers' dollars. Uh, is is that the way in which law enforcement will effectively be held accountable for wrongs that are committed against uh, Black and Brown communities? I mean, I, I'll think, I'll honestly say, I think that's one way um, that you can at least start to get movement and change. Because if um, everyone in the community is essentially having to pay for, the, for, for a wrong, 
then everyone in the community will have to pay attention to the wrongs and pay attention to developing positive solutions. Um, and so with the city having to pay this money, um, that's everybody in the city who, who as you mentioned, April, um, through their tax dollars are paying for it. But in that way, then everybody's got to pay attention and own what the problem is, own trying to find a, a way around it so that it doesn't happen again. I agree that it, it is a part of it. I think that, I mean, clearly you always get the, some folks' attention if you hit them in their pockets, right? But I don't think that um, having the city pay out on you know a settlement like this really hits folks in their pocket as a citizen. You know what I mean? And like Dion said, it does hopefully um, effectuate some change within the departments themselves. That if the city sees, you know, we're, it's looking like we're going to have to continue to pay out. I mean, let's be real though. They actually have certain um, amount of funds that set aside specifically for these things. And so they, the city and the states, they anticipate having to pay out. So that's already factored into, you know, the budget and everything from the beginning. So it really doesn't hit people in the pocket like, you know, you would think of in uh, other circumstances. However, it says a lot about Brianna Taylor's, the attorneys that's representing her state and other attorneys who are willing to go that route in order, you know, including in that, not just the settlement. I mean, they're going to go that route, but including in the settlement, things like what you talked about, um, Dion, as far as the, the Brianna's law and making the change and including that as a part of the package. And I think that has more of an impact than the settlement itself, because most citizens don't feel it. They don't feel like, oh, my, my taxes went up a couple of dollars because they paid out this $12 million settlement for to Brianna Taylor's family. No, they don't feel that, but they do feel it if, you know, they see that the, the, the police department has to be more transparent and they need more training or that they're not allowed to um, issue or um, effectuate these no knock warrants and things like that. They do feel it in that way. And I think that is, like you said, that is a, a huge start. Well, do, do, do you see that the Brianna Taylor outcome at this point is going to have a significant impact on the uh, relationship between uh, police departments and uh, African-American uh, communities? Yes, I think that it's going to, um, it just furthers the lack of trust. And so it has a negative impact um, in that way. I think, like I said, we've already spoken about the positive impact, which is the Brianna's law and, you know, different discussions that are taking place. Um, it, it's, it, it is exposing um, Daniel Cameron in a way. It's exposing other people in the, the police department and different things like that. So it, right now it appears as if there's you know, more negative impact than it is positive. Hopefully we are able to get to a more positive um, outcome, but right now it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't look too good. And hopefully the federal government will take on those other um, cases. And that will definitely cause some, you know, folks to feel a lot better about what is going on and she would not have died in vain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and while the civil um, 
you know, the civil settlement was certainly accountability on the part of, of the, the city. What is lacking, of course, is accountability on the part of the officers. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems with this system that we have is if an individual officer is not held accountable and they're kept on the force, and, and even if they're kicked off a particular force, they go on to other law enforcement agencies. So if individual officers know that they individually will never be held accountable, they won't be held accountable in terms of their job. They won't be held accountable in terms of their own personal pocketbook. Um, how do we continue to, to make progress without some individual accountability on the part of the officers? And, and in answering that question, can you all share your thoughts about qualified immunity and, and how that protects officers um, and prevents them from having to account for uh, their improper deeds? So I, I would just say, well, I'll take the last part first. Uh, you know, the, the concept of qualified immunity is that the, the individual officers, um, you know, they will not be held civilly responsible for things that they're doing as part of their job um, unless it's found that, that they have uh, violated a clearly established federal right. Um, and what that means is the courts uh, take into account all the surrounding circumstances um, and, and decide you know, whether based on those circumstances, the officers acted reasonably or unreasonably based on what they knew. Um, and so the, the officers here individually would have been insulated um, simply by the fact that Kenny Walker fi fired his gun even that, that, that one time um, because they have then a, a claim that they were responding um, to, to protect life. Um, you know, they were responding in self-defense and to protect their, their um, fellow officers. So that, that's where qualified immunity gets for the officers. But I do think that the, to the extent that the city is held responsible, um, it does an, an impact individual officers, at least to a small extent. And, and, and maybe I'm an optimist about this, but I do think that the city then has an incentive to avoid these situations by making sure that they hire the right people. Right. So not necessarily hiring that officer who in some other agency had been found to have used excessive force or to violated other people's rights. You know, it gives the city in their hiring and recruiting process some incentive to look into these things um, and to background check some of these things. Um, and so, you know, in, in that way, I, I do think that, that the civil litigation aspects of it uh, are helpful. It may not be perfect, um, but, but it's at least something. You know, that, that officer may not individually have to pay out anything, but that officer probably couldn't pay out anything anyway um, to, to, to be real about it. Um, so the only way that, that officers can be held individually uh, responsible and, and actually feel something from it would be through the criminal justice system and then being charged criminally and having to be put in that position of, of having to explain themselves um, to more than just the prosecutor. Well, it appears that the laws are set up in such a way that the uh, police officer are, are, are protected in everything that they do, especially as it relates to uh, African-Americans and people of color. Absolutely. I mean, we have a situation here where this one officer is pretty much outraged that he that this indictment even came down on the charge that he did get. 
which is wanton endangerment for not taking a having a being a sharpshooter essentially for not being good at shooting directly into the apartment that you all are in but for having shot just kind of willy-nilly into other apartments and other so you wantonly endangered those folks but not Breonna Taylor so and he's outraged essentially like how could I you know it kind of I should maybe I shouldn't use outrage he's appalled at the fact that he has been even charged with this when we are over here outraged with how did they all not get charged with at least manslaughter of having killed her I, I honestly believe that charge was a bread crumb. Yes. Uh, they were hoping that, 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 that there could be at least some criminal charge out there and that that would appease people and they would stop protesting if at least some officer was charged with something. Um, but at the end of the day, he, he was an easy target um, mm -hmm. in some ways because he already, you know, after this, um, after Breonna Taylor was killed, um, women started to come out and accuse this particular officer of, of sexual misconduct and, and harassment. Um, and so he's got other more serious charges th that, that he's going to have to deal with. And so it made it easy, I think in some ways for um, you know, the, the AG and, and the rest of those in power to say, well, you know what, Let, let's see if we can give this breadcrumb to the community by charging him with something. In addition to that, from what I understand, there was some information that came out about um, him having a, the, the fact that they charged him was because he had a different type of weapon than all the other officers. But, and this may not be correct information, but somewhere I read about how the other officer that was shot in some way, it can it appears to have come from his weapon, but, and he probably would get worse treatment for, for that than for wantonly endangering Brianna Taylor and all the other folks around. And we probably should talk about what wanton endangerment is, which is an extreme indifference to the value of human life. And that's any life. You don't have, it doesn't have to be a specific person that is the target of that extreme indifference or that manifestation of the extreme indifference. So how is it that you are able to say that he wantonly endangered other people, but not her? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so obviously we're not done with this discussion. We are going to bring you back, but we are out of time for, for this hour. And we, of course, would like to thank our wonderful guests, Dion Gonder, clinical law professor at NCCU Law and supervising attorney of the Criminal Litigation Clinic, and Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, clinical law professor and supervising attorney for the Juvenile Law Clinic. And we'd also like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you've learned something. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe. Mm -hmm.